Hello, this is Aaron Wren, and welcome back to the show. I'm delighted today to have special guest Nancy Piercy. She is a professor and scholar in residence at Houston Christian University. She's been quoted in many publications ranging from The New Yorker to Newsweek. She was highlighted as one of the top five women apologists by Christianity Today and hailed in The Economist as America's preeminent evangelical Protestant female intellectual. She's the author of several books, including her most recent, The Toxic War on Masculinity, How Christianity Reconciles the Sexes, that we are here to discuss today. And there is a link to buy that in the show notes, so be sure to check that out. The most important part, buy the book. Thank you so much for joining me, Professor Piercy. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. The toxic war on masculinity seems to be a play on the phrase toxic masculinity. I assume that was intentional? Of course, yes. You know, I had to get both of those words in there, because yeah. that's the phrase, um, to catch attention. But I didn't want to use the phrase toxic masculinity as if I think there is such a thing, because I don't. I don't mm -hmm. think masculinity is toxic. And so I tried to come up with a play on words and, and it seems to have worked because it does catch attention and people always do sort of a double take that wait the, <laughs> yeah. the what <laughs> the toxic war so it, it hasn't done what it's supposed to do which is catch attention um and like i said i don't think the that that masculinity is toxic that's the whole point of the book and so i didn't want to even i don't even use the phrase in the book oh interesting you know, ever yeah interesting well, what is the war on masculinity and why is it toxic? Well, you know, my I was first caught by noting how socially acceptable it's become to express incredible hostility against men. Um, the Washington Post had an article titled, Why Can't We Hate Men? Mm. I thought, really? In, in a respected mainstream publication, um, the Huffington Post, uh, an editor tweeted, hashtag, kill all men. Uh, you mm -hmm. can buy t-shirts that say so many men so little ammunition yeah. um, and and there are book titles that are very blunt like i hate men <laughs> no good men and are men necessary mm. so and, and then to my surprise there are also some men jumping on the bandwagon uh, there's a male author fairly well known who wrote a book in which he said talking about healthy masculinity is like talking about healthy cancer mm. And then you probably saw this because it came out after my book, uh, but it was in the news. The director of the movie Avatar, James Cameron, uh, was in the news saying uh, "Mascul uh, testosterone, that's how he put it. Testosterone is a toxin that mm. you have to work out of your system. So this is what first brought my attention to this. I thought, we've got to get to the bottom of this. Where is this incredible hostility coming from? You can't really stand against the social trend unless you know where it came from and how it developed. And so that was my first goal in the book, is just where did the secular definition of masculinity even come from so that we can oppose it more effectively? Hmm. You note in there that uh, public rhetoric always often cast men as villains and women as victims. Where did these stereotypes come from? Yeah, so there's a lot of history in the book because that has deep historical roots. And again, if you don't know where it came from, you can't really effectively counter it. So let's go back to um, the before the Industrial Revolution. I mean, when I hear people talk about this, they often think, well, it started with 1960s second wave mm -hmm. feminism. And I said, no, actually, you have to go back to the Industrial Revolution. Because before that, 
men worked alongside their family members, their wives and children all day on the family industry, the family farm, the family business. And so the cultural expectation on manhood was very much geared to their caretaking role. In fact, uh, interesting historical fact is that most books on child rearing and parenting were addressed to men. Today, most of them, mm -hmm. you go to a typical bookstore and they're all addressed to women. Mm -hmm. But back then the father was seen as a primary parent. And so he was the one who was addressed for the, on behalf of the family. And I, I love it when even secular historians will acknowledge this. Um, they say that the definition of masculine virtue was duty to God and man. Mm -hmm. So how did we lose that? The Industrial Revolution took work out of the home. And of course, men had to follow their work out of the home into office, mm -hmm. offices and factories. And that's when you first start to see the language change. People began to protest that men were losing the caretaking ethos that they had in the colonial era. That they were, instead of working alongside family members, people they loved and had a moral bond with, they were working as individuals in competition with other men. And their character began to change. They, the, in the literature of the day, you find people protesting that men were becoming egocentric, self-interested, uh, get ahead at all costs, um, uh, greedy and acquisitive, using the 19th century language, and, and even making their career an idol. That's the actual language used, making their career an idol. And so instead of working on behalf of their family members, they were working for personal advancement, financial success, and so on. And so that's the first time you see negative language applied mm -hmm. to the male character. And of course, that does suggest what the solution is, too. If it started when men were disconnected from their families, the task today is, can we reconnect men to their families? Even in an industrial age, are there ways to reconnect fathers more closely with their wives and children? Yeah, but I'm that didn't answer your question. No, you didn't, I didn't ask that. That's all preparatory. I didn't okay. actually answer your question yet, <laughs> um, because what you were asking about was the double standard, and 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 that comes next. Hmm. So, um, as the industrial revolution also created a a large public arena. You know, it's the split between private and public. You know that that didn't happen when economic production took place in the home. But now that economic production took place outside of the home, there emerged, you know, large factories, um, business institutions, financial institutions, universities, and of course the state grew larger too. So mm -hmm. people began to argue that these large public institutions should operate by scientific principles, by which they meant value-free, secular. Mm -hmm. Just like today, when we hear people say, don't bring your private values into the public arena. Mm -hmm. And since it was men who were getting that secularized university education, working in that secular field, they did become secular in outlook sooner than women did. And if values were kicked out of the public square, where would they be cultivated? In the private sphere. Mm -hmm. By whom? By women. And so that's when you first start to see it. I have to tell you, most people think this is forever. No, for the first time in human history, women were said to be morally and spiritually superior to men. This was completely novel. All the way back to the ancient Greeks and Romans, people had thought that men were morally superior. Hmm. Their reasoning was, they thought that the insight into right and wrong was a rational insight, mm -hmm. and they thought men were more rational, and therefore men were more virtuous. In fact, the word virtue 
comes from the Latin root V-I-R means man, mm. like in the word virile. So the word virtue had overtones of manly strength and honor. And so really, this was the first time in the 19th century that women began to be seen as morally and spiritually superior to men. And so that's where you have to go back. If you want to figure out where it came from and how can how can we address it today? It started in the 19th century when the, the public realm was secularized and values, religion, spirituality were privatized. That, that's the co the core is as Christians, we need to stand against that privatization of religion. You know, Christianity is a worldview that's meant to apply to all of life. It's not meant to be locked up in the private sphere. So it's part of the broader issue of the privatization of religion in general. I was really glad to see in the book that you brought up the history around industrialization because it really did radically transform society into forms it had never before Seen. It also led to, you know, urbanization, people leaving the farms and going into these cities, which were very unhealthy. There were a lot of things, the privatization of that. And you cite a great book by a British uh, researcher named Callum Brown called The Death mm -hmm. of Christian Britain, I believe is the name of it, that I read years ago. I found it through Charles Taylor because he quotes that book in A Secular Age. And I read it and he it was really kind of very eye opening when he talked about in, which you talk about in this book, you know, angels going from being portrayed in a very manly, masculine way to angels being portrayed as women guarding children. So I think people will benefit a lot from the history that you distill down from all these other sources in, in a really digestible format that talks about a lot of these social changes that underpin some of this. Because you're right that we do tend to think everything must date to the 60s or something of that nature, when in fact it actually goes back a lot further uh in into the past uh, but here's the thing isn't it true that a lot of men actually are toxic uh, i think about andrew tate for example and there do seem to be a lot of men behaving badly and there there was some of that back in the industrial revolution too where men went together to the factory they got their paycheck and then they went and drank it away or gambled it away and their families suffered how do you uh, how do you address that? Yeah, so you're right. You know, I mentioned that as the public realm became secularized, men became more secular. And of course, then biblical ethics had a weaker hold on their conscience. In fact, for in a lot of the 19th century, it was expected that men would come home from the rough and tumble, you know, amoral uh, public realm and come home and be reformed and refined and renewed by his morally superior wife. Well, that didn't exactly work because what man wants his wife to be his conscience. Mm -hmm. And secondly, it also is the next generation. What happened to the children after the Industrial Revolution, especially boys? Well, what happened is their fathers were no longer there to su supervise them during the day. For the first time, men had, a, uh, excuse me, boys, boys had a lot of unsupervised time people began to complain that boys were becoming wild and rowdy and unmanageable. And this is kind of when the phrase emerged, boys will be boys. Hmm. Before that, people did not expect that boys would be more misbehaving than girls, because remember, men were thought to be morally superior. Mm -hmm. So from the time they were boys, they were expected to have high moral qualities. But when hus husbands and fathers were out of the home all day, hmm. and 
there's a leading psychologist of the 19th century who put it this way. He said, never in American history has the boy been so wild and so half orphaned. Hmm. Half orphaned because, you know, the father was no longer there actually raising him actively. And then he said, boys have been left to female guidance in the home, the school, and the church. And so what happened when these boys grew up then? Well, if they were becoming wild and unruly, they brought that with them. Mm-hmm. As as you mentioned, urbanization, as they were moving from the fact the farms into the cities, they brought that wildness with them. And so that's one reason there was a huge increase in the 19th century in gambling, fighting, gang activity, drinking, prostitution. Sometimes a single fact can crystallize it. So in 1830, Americans drank three times as much as they do today. So wow. there was a reason there was a temperance movement. <laughs> so this is, um, it was the second generation who actually, you know, growing up without their fathers that really created the toxic behavior that that we see even today, like you said, with Andrew Tate. And mm. I mean, I saw I saw an interview with Andrew Tate where he specifically said, I'm, I'm a pimp and mm-hmm. I've made my money by producing pornography. And I'm like, wait a minute all these young boys are looking up to him. I got an email from a former graduate student of mine who now teaches high school. Mm-hmm. And she said, all my, all my male students are, in, are fans of Andrew Tate. They're even using Andrew Tate quotes in the yearbook. Mm. And I said, wow. where, where do you teach? <laughs> she said, at a, at a classical Christian school. <laughs> so I think, you know, we saw, we saw the problem of kind of failure to launch, right? Boys becoming passive. But I think we're seeing a, a stronger trend now towards boys reaching out to these online influencers like Andrew Tate and uh, have you seen Myron Gaines? He was just hmm, um, one I don't know. He was just um, hailed as the new Andrew Tate <laughs> in the New York Post, and his his tagline is "I help men transform from simps into pimps." <laughs> and yeah. yeah. And he openly says, you should never get married. A man can never limit himself to one woman, for goodness right. sakes, no. You know, he can have a main girlfriend, but he always has to be free right. to have other women because the male character is naturally promiscuous, you know, right. and, and and women just have to accept that. So this is the online influencers that are coming up today. And and I, I'm glad that you bring it back. You know, you want to see the deeper roots. Mm-hmm. A lot of it was the boys growing up without their fathers. And so, of course, again, that's, it's a hint to what the solution is, you know, that boys mm-hmm. really need their fathers. Um, and that, and today, 40% of children in America are growing up apart from their natural fathers. It's the highest rate of single parenthood in the world. Yeah. A lot of people so don't should, know that, that we're like, yes. you know, we're like higher than even like Russia and Brazil and countries like that, way higher than a lot of countries. Yeah. Yes. And, and it's usually, of course, um, the father who's gone. Mm-hmm. Um, so that we have those, all these children being raised by, uh, by women and women are wonderful. They do a great job, but they can't mm-hmm. be fathers. In my book, I quote, um, th- there was a study done on how successful parents are in passing on their religious spiritual convictions. It's a 35 year longitudinal study, won all kinds of awards for being a great study. And the study found two surprising things. The first one was fathers matter more than mothers. 
And um, my female students say, that's not fair. Hmm. <laughs> Mothers matter, but fathers matter more. If the father is a committed Christian, the children are much more likely to follow. You know, if the mother's a, a committed Christian, then the number is quite, quite a bit lower. But if the father is c committed in his faith, the children will follow. But the second thing they found was it depends on the quality of the relationship. If the father is a pillar of the church, if he's a moral exemplar, if he has perfect doctrine and theology, but he's perceived to be cold and distant, his children won't follow him. They won't. Mm. It has to be a warm, loving, close relationship. And what's interesting is that even secular researchers are finding this. There's another book that focused just on how to produce masculine sons. Hmm. Um, it's called Why Fathers Matter. And they found that the, the masculinity of the father was irrelevant. It didn't matter how masculine the father was. What mattered was the close, warm, loving relationship with the son. That produces young men who are secure and stable and confident in their sense of masculinity, is that they are warm, you know, the warm, mm -hmm. loving relationship. So I thought that was interesting coming from a secular perspective. They found something quite similar. It's the relationship with the father that matters the most. So let me like try to summarize some of this is industrialization really did change the relationship between fathers and their family, fathers and their children. And this did produce some legitimate negative effects, but at the same time, it also produced a sort of cultural reaction combined with this privatization of faith in which, uh, in, in essence, you know, men, you, you know, there was all the focus was essentially on the negatives of men, the positives of men weren't recognized and women were effectively put on a pedestal and given a pass. Is, is that fair or am I missing a little bit there? You know, there were writers in the 19th century who actually argued that women were not fallen. Men mm. were fallen, women were not. So yes, they went way too far yeah. in terms of putting women on a pedestal. But, um, and a lot of this happened with the reform movements of the 19th century. Because men's behavior grew worse, you know, there was an increase in drinking, mm. gambling, fighting. Um, the 19th century is also known as the, the century of the re great reform movements. You know, historians re refer to them collectively as the benevolent empire because mm -hmm. there were so many of them. But most of them were actually operated by women. Um, they often grew out of the churches, but the foot soldiers were mostly women. And so that created a lot of tension between men and women. Why? Because what, what these reform movements were primarily targeting, targeting were traditional male vices, mm -hmm. right? And... Um, that one of my one of my favorite historians puts it this way. She said, um, "Virtually all the female reform associations were implicit condemnations of males. There was little doubt mm -hmm. as to the sex mm. of the tavern keeper, the slave master, the drunkard, and the and the seducer." So, it, it's true that a lot of tension grew between the two sexes in. Um, in the 19th century, I have a wonderful image, for example, there were engravings made at the time, and there were multiple engravings made of the men in the saloon and the women kneeling and singing hymns in the street outside, you know, mm -hmm. reinforcing that religion is for women. 
Mm. And then the men are shown in the doorway and in the windows with their arms crossed and angry looks on their faces. <laughs> you know, the, the tension between them is just palpable. And, and that was one of the most common images that you see from the 19th century. So a lot of what, I mean, this is the Me Too movement before mm -hmm. the Me Too movement, right? mm -hmm. where women were focused on what were traditionally male vices. But as a result, well, you know what the result was? Finally, men started to revolt. Men started to say, well, if men are just lewd, rude, and crude, mm -hmm. that's just their natural male nature. That's just mm -hmm. their nature. And so this especially took off after uh, Darwin's theory of evolution. This was kind of surprising because we mm. think that's a scientific theory, but it had a huge impact on cultural definitions of masculinity because Darwinian writers began to say that since we evolved by the struggle for survival, the men who came out on top would be those who were ruthless, brutal, barbarian, savage, mm -hmm. and predatory. And instead of urging men to live up to the image of God in them, they began to urge men to live down to their presumed animal nature, to the beast within. That was their favorite phrase. And so this had a huge impact on men basically saying, well, this is just the basic male nature and, you know, accept it. Kind of like that Myron Gaines quote I just gave yeah. you, you know, men are just naturally sexually promiscuous, uh, accept it. And that has continued, by the way. Um, I, I give a couple of more examples that are more current. Uh, the evolution is now called evolutionary psychology. It's a yep. new name for social Darwinism. Uh, but it was a best-selling book that was called The Moral Animal. And he says, the author says, the human male is a an oppressive, possessive, flesh-obsessed pig. Mm -hmm. Giving them a booklet on how to have a successful marriage is like giving Vikings a book on how not to pillage. And I thought, really? Can you really be this demeaning to men? And the other one that's come out more recently, you've probably seen it. Um, George Gilder's book was reissued. Yes. And George Gilder does it too. I mean, <laughs> he said it, it, he rewrote it some, but this is still in the rewrite. He still says men are by nature violent. Mm -hmm. uh, sexually predatory and irresponsible, and their greatest yearning is to jump on their mo motorbike and escape, escape from civilization, escape from wife and family and responsibilities. To, and, and this is a direct quote, to a primal mode of predatory and immediate gratification. And I thought, how can, how can we, how can he get away with being so demeaning <laughs> to men? Well, he got a lot of flack when they reissued the book. I don't know if you saw that. Uh, a lot of the uh, younger Christian guys called him George Gelder and uh, oh. <laughs> other things of that nature. But you know, the thing you, you really, the evolutionary psychology thing I thought was right on, all of these manosphere figures um, explicitly embrace evolutionary psychology as the sort of mode that underpins how they interact and how they should interact. Like you said of Myron Gaines, it's like men are supposed to be naturally promiscuous. You should have a harem. You shouldn't invest. Those are the things that are kind of um, out there. And so it really uh, affects them. Even the ones that are less um, negative, like say Jordan Peterson. Jordan Peterson's oh. very much evolutionary psychology guy. All of his lobsters 
and uh, you know the hierarchy of lobsters and things of that nature it really does influence and underpin the entire worldview of much of the online men's influencer space yes and which of course is another reason we should critique darwinism you know i have a background in science um intelligent design so um i've i've been in the intelligent design circles for a long time on the on the uh, um scientific mm -hmm. failures of darwinism it's a, just one more reason that we should bring people back to the science you know it has it, looking at the cultural implications of social darwinism and it, it's certainly not just the view of masculinity it's it's also supported eugenics and so on i mean historically so it's another reason that we should be going back to the science and looking at some of the scientific reasons why darwinism fails as well yeah, it certainly had great moral implications, and people understood that even at the time. Some of the critics of Darwinism brought up, well, if you if you embrace this, then, then you'll be, next thing you know, we'll have, they didn't call it eugenics, you'll be starting, and of course, that's what actually happened. Although that's sort of a little bit been airbrushed out of the, uh, the Politburo photo, if it were, especially a lot of the old social Darwinist thinking. We just pretend that never happened. Yes, although it's coming back. Uh, eugenics is coming back, which is not surprising, you know, as, as our culture secularizes, it's reaching back and and reviving some of those older views. Um, and also, I think the, um, the the George Gilder thing, by the way, you, you said that some of the younger Christians um, created some flack about it. Well, one of George Gilder's friends put me in touch with him on Twitter. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I thought, okay, this is going to be interesting. Um, but all he said was, all he said was, I'm reading your book and it's very well written and interesting. <laughs> and that, that's all he said. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He's, um, he's, he's stuck. He's sticking to his guns. I think it does seem like on that. But uh, I want to talk about your book, uh, not his. Uh, again, the book is The Toxic War on Masculinity, How Christianity Reconciles the Sexes by Nancy Piercy, who's my guest today. And there's a link to buy it in the show notes. I could talk about this history all day. It's fascinating stuff, and a lot of people don't think about it. But I do want to talk, turn to Christianity, because that's part of the book. You know, a lot of what you hear today is that Christianity is the source of what they criticize as toxic masculinity. Uh, many of the secular writers really are very critical of evangelicalism, but you say Christian men shatter the stereotypes. What's the truth about the church and men? Yeah, so this is the final reason I said I have to write this book, mm -hmm. because in doing my research, I, I kind of stumbled across the sociological data on Christian men. and. And like you, I've always heard the negative side, and mm. uh, it was easy to find examples to put into the book, but I'll give you just one. This was the co-founder of the Church Two movement, which followed the Me Too movement. Mm -hmm. And she said, the theology of male headship feeds the rape culture that we see permeating American Christianity today. Mm. And so social scientists were listening to these uh, accusations and saying, where's your evidence? You know, you're making these charges, but where's your mm -hmm. data? And so they went out and did the studies and they found that contrary to the secular narrative, in fact, Christian men test out at the top at, as being the most loving and engaged husbands and fathers. So in my book, I bring men back repeatedly to the cultural mandate because the cultural mandate is was the job description 
that God gave to the human race, you know, pre-fall, right? So God's created the heavens and the earth and the animals, and he creates the first human couple. And what is the first thing he says to them? You know, he, he tells them why he created them. What's their purpose? The, the job description. And he says, be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. And in the streamlined language of Genesis, we can unpack that many layers. So be fruitful, obviously, it's not just the family because all the social institutions historically grew out of the family. The family becomes a clan, becomes a village, a tribe, becomes a city, a nation. And then there are social institutions that form for particular purposes. You know, you need a government, you need a church, you need a school, you need a marketplace. So it's a very rich understanding of men's calling, men and women, but we're focusing on men, that, that men have, you know, they are called to, to participate in all these different levels of society, including the laws and constitutions and treaties, you know, that, that shape those institutions. And then subdue the earth means harness the natural resources. So most civilizations start with agriculture, but then mining and technology and mm -hmm. computers and, uh, and even music. So one of my students said, oh, come on, what do you mean music? I said, well, I play the violin. So what's the violin made out of? Hmm. Wood. Right. What's the bow made out of? Horsehair. So all the transcendent beauty that we associate with music starts with harnessing the raw materials of nature. Mm -hmm. So if men had this notion in mind of what their purpose is, it's incredibly rich. And it's called the cultural mandate because people have interpreted this to mean the the purpose of the human race is to create cultures right? to create mm -hmm. civilizations to make history and so i think losing that you know back to the word we used earlier privatization religion has been so privatized that many men think religion means go to church and pray and worship and know that you're saved you know mm -hmm. that's about it and so they don't really think how christianity applies to all the rest of life you know, to everything that they do, and particularly the, their vocation, um, and how to do all of their work to the glory of God. You know, it's one of it was one of Martin Luther's great insights. You know, he wanted to recover the niche. The word vocation in the Catholic era had been used just for religious vocations: priest, monk, nun. And Luther intentionally took the word vocation and said, "No, it means what you do." as a husband and father. It, it's what mm -hmm. you do as a merchant. It's what mm -hmm. you do as a baker. It's what you do as a magistrate. Mm -hmm. And so that's what we need to recover from men is that the cultural mandate gives them a great amount of a great scope, right? For the ambition and their mastery and, um, you know, uh, what's the word I'm thinking of? Um, well, yeah. <laughs> the, 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 Ma taking taking dominion and like the, the the kind of the ruling and structuring of of creating order out of chaos as, as jordan peterson might put it and having an impact i mean men aspire to have an impact you know to make a difference yes and 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 the cultural mandate says yeah that's what you were made for well i i could not agree more i think that's uh really excellent i totally think that pastors should be much more in teaching men in that way of thinking. So that's great advice. Nancy Piercy, thank you so much for joining me again. The book is The Toxic War on Masculinity, How Christianity Reconciles the Sexes. There's, again, there's a link to buy it in the show notes, so be sure to check it out. Thank you so much for joining me. 
Thank you. It's good to see you in person after yes. reading your newsletter. So <laughs> I'm really glad we had a chance to talk. And best of luck with the book. Thank you.